0: Welcome to Talking Precision Medicine, the podcast in which we discuss the future of healthcare and health technology and how advances in data and data science are fueling the next industrial revolution. Today, we turn the mic around as our guest, Adam Stasio, hosts an excellent podcast of his own. Adam's day job, however, is running SciMed, a boutique life science software development company. Adam and Genialis CEO, Raphael Rosengarten, discuss the state of scientific software, the importance of agility and communication, and approaches to building a lasting company culture. Come on in and have a lesson.
1: Hey, everybody. It's my privilege today to welcome Adam Stasio, president of SciMed Solutions, as our guest. Uh, SciMed Solutions is a software development firm working in the life sciences space. Uh, but I'm going to let Adam introduce the company. So Adam, let's jump right in. Tell us about SciMed Solutions. What's your mission? What problems do you solve?
2: Rafael, it's great to see you again. Let me start a uh, big picture because um, I, I know we are a software firm, but my mission really is just to have a great place to work and to do a great job for our clients. I want happy employees and happy clients, a good work environment. And so at one level, um, it doesn't matter to me what our clients need or what our, my employees need. My job is to figure out how to get them done. So if somebody wants a fence, then I'm going to figure out how to get them a fence. But, you know, realistically, we're helping people solve technical problems primarily through software development and data analysis. And we have a group of people who is interested in working on problems that are beneficial, help make the world a better place. You know, that's subjective, of course, but um we tend to be working on projects in in medicine, biotech, biomedical research. So to be more concrete, our projects are things like, software development to help data management, data analysis in areas like vaccine development, virology, immunology, 3D surgical implantation, um, molecular diagnostics for cancer care, uh, mental health care treatment, microbiology, crop genetics, I can go on and on, but uh, that's sort of the world in which we're we're typically working.
1: That's quite a broad, you know, a broad swath of problem spaces. Um, who then are your clients? Are these drug developers and, and I guess, um, Ag business firms, uh, academic groups, all the above.
2: Yeah, I would say the majority of the groups we're working with are universities, university hospital systems, university uh, research teams. We also have a, a big clientele that is sort of a private biotech, so some of pharmaceutical or other types of um, uh, groups like that doing drug development or bio- biotech research. So yeah, it is. It's a pretty uh, broad. It's, it's somewhat broad. Um, But in terms of being a team that's hired for services, you know, they could also hire us to write software for financial systems or, you know, any industry. What we tend to have are a group of people who are, I like to consider them relatively smart, quick at getting into a meeting and understanding complex topics. So that allows us to talk to somebody who, uh, you know, they have... 30 years of experience studying HIV or, or influenza or something, and we need to start understanding what they need pretty quickly. And if the only people who who will go in that room are somebody else who has 30 years of experience studying the same virus, then what they won't have is the background in software development and data analysis. So that's where I think we can bridge the gap. Yeah,
1: this has been a recurring theme as long as we've been doing the podcast, and I'm sure for many years before that. It's how do you build kind of a common language to bridge the the tech side and the the life science side? And I'm interested to to hear how you guys approach it. It sounds as if your employees are mostly indexed towards the technologists, the software developers and engineers, but how do you think about building a team where you have the translators as well?
2: Yeah, so um, we tend to have people whose primary background is technology. And their secondary background or interest is in uh, science. And like I said, I like to think you know they're they're quick enough that they can get in a meeting and understand requirements and ask the right questions of of anybody. We do have some folks with some science background, or PhDs and master's degrees in things like bioinformatics and those types of things as well. So we you know we we're we're catching developers who have mixed skill sets as well. But I, I think the communication question is an important one, and and I think it's important in in more maybe quite important in every industry and that's a place that we focus a lot of attention and that I think is allowing us to make uh, successful projects.
1: That makes sense. Yeah, there's kind of this age-old um, debate
2: is it easier to teach a
1: biologist to code or a coder to understand biology and probably it's it's equally hard to do both so you know instead of requiring them to be a dual expert you just you need to have the sort of translation layers you need to have people to bridge it probably.
2: Yeah, I think that's true. One of the things I'll say is when we um, have conversations with our clients, if we're asking the right questions, they can tell if we're asking the right questions. When we read back the results of a meeting or or describe a plan or start building a system, they can see if we're building what they need. What I'll argue is if you have um, somebody with less experience in software development building that system, then it'll look like it does what it needs to. But the system won't be reliable and maintainable, uh, which means after a short time, after a year, year and a half, when that software needs to change, it becomes a nightmare and either becomes expensive or the project dies. So in order to make the project successful, maybe, maybe another way of saying that is our clients have the scientific expertise. So if we bring mostly science expertise and not technical expertise, It might look good and then it's not going to work. But if we bring the technical expertise, then we can make sure that we have the whole package.
1: No, that makes sense. I mean, you're absolutely filling a gap. It's good to hear that you work a lot with like universities, university hospital systems, having been an academic researcher and having even attempted to write code as an academic researcher. You know, it actually kind of erodes my trust in in biomedical science to know that there are people like me who've written code that like papers have. Relied on the analysis of right, so having professional software, I think, is absolutely essential to ultimately to having good research.
2: Yeah, um, there there is a number of ways. So I mentioned earlier maintainability of software. I think that one of the things that we do is write software where the code is really easy to to read and understand. And what that can do is help reduce maintenance costs, but also reduce bugs and and other issues because we try to make it uh, abundantly clear what the what the code is doing and you know i think this is going to be a recurring theme because at every stage and level the number one thing that it all boils down to communication are we communicating effectively and clearly with our clients are we communicating effectively and clearly between our project managers and our developers but also are we communicating clearly in every email that we send in every design plan and wireframe that we create are we are we communicating clearly in the code that we're writing for future developers? Are we communicating clearly in the user interface that we build? I, th- I often talk about things in terms of a glance test. So if I get an email or if I send an email, I want to be able to glance at it and glance away after half a second or one second. and and I, well, the question is how much do I know about that email? How much do I feel like I'm engaged and I want to keep reading? or how much do I feel like I saw a wall of text and I don't want to go back and I have no idea what it said? And similarly, if I look at a user interface, I want to glance at a glance away. How much do I know? Hopefully after half a second, I should basically know what's on the screen and how to use most of it. If I don't, then if I have to start reading a 20 page manual, right. you know, I think we've lost the communication battle.
1: No, I, I think that's that's an important distinction between kind of the old way of doing things. And it it, it makes me wonder a little bit also about how you guys approach the software development itself. I'm guessing you you use agile methodologies. Yeah. Um, is, is that a fair
2: assumption? Yeah, we do. We do use agile methodologies, right? So this is opposed to waterfall method, traditional where you might spend many, many months and years uh, doing requirements gathering. And um, I can talk about some of the downsides to that. We don't follow a scrum or agile methodology to textbook. Exactly. Um, one of the things that um, agile methodology can do is prevent you from seeing the big picture both by thinking too short term or by taking a problem space and breaking it up into I I, I think I see huge advantages to breaking up problem into smaller problems but you have to make sure that you know how all the pieces fit together so yes the short answer is agile I am I don't just say that's the final answer. We do everything following a textbook, but yes.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, we, we've we experienced this at Genial. It's one challenge of doing agile in the life sciences is you have to make sure what you're building has the kind of quantum of value, right? Like it has to work to the minimum degree. And if, if all you've done is built the piece that lets you say, enter your search, but it doesn't find the results or if it you can upload your data, but nothing gets analyzed, your customer is going to sit there shaking their head like, wait, this isn't what I ordered it. It can add to the challenge of communication, even if it's part of the process.
2: Yeah. So maybe one way of saying that is, yeah, breaking it down to the right size pieces. What I don't want to do is wait months and months to start building anything. I want to start building things. I want to have something done by the end of the week. And, and then the idea, the benefit of that is people can start reviewing it and, and deciding if we're on course or if we need to change course. And that's one of the downsides of waterfall uh, methodology. You know, if you spend five years doing requirements gathering, first of all, the business has changed in that time so whatever requirements you gathered the business is now doing something different uh, on top of which there are a million things that you could have learned in those five years if you had started using something and instead after five years you start using a system and then learn all of the things about your business that you never realized so yes keeping things small and also trying to keep in mind the, the big picture and how can we make usable components
1: I want to come back to talking a bit about your team and, and the company culture, but for now, let's follow the software thread a little further. The The first question is that maybe a short one is, do you find yourself doing predominantly on premises deploys? And so for my audience, this means, you know, like building software that you install on a computer or a server at the customer, or have you seen university hospitals and biotechs really adopt the cloud like the rest of us have in consumer software?
2: Yeah, I've certainly, I've seen all of it and, and that's both based on um sort of many years of, of being in the industry, but also different customers want to do different things. Some of our customers and clients have their own data centers. Some of them don't, and they don't want to have a data center and they don't want to know what server is. They just want the application to run and we get to decide where to run it. Uh, we've seen hospitals, you know, lagging a bit. Well, this is, um, I think a bit funny, but uh, lagging a bit in terms of um, adoption of the cloud. But I think that that's something that we've seen movement towards. At the same time, there have been companies who are at the forefront of a cloud adoption who are now actually reverting to some on-premises stuff. Because depending on your usage of those cloud servers, it can be quite a bit more expensive than hosting uh, some servers locally. Now, there's another approach in the cloud, which um, I think we're seeing trends towards serverless deployments where things are built as cloud-native functions rather than an application that needs to be deployed to a full windows server or full linux server and it's a different way of thinking about um, building things but it can have some real benefits and have a lower cost running in the cloud so but yeah we, the h- hospitals are starting to move in that direction as well
1: can you speak so first of all how long have you been doing this because i want to ask a question about sort of trends and in, in, you know what people are, are asking to have built so just give us a sense for how long your view of, of life science software demand has been?
2: Yeah, it's a we're in the fifteen to twenty year range somewhere. I can figure out exactly where, but oh wow, yeah. okay, gosh, that's, and that's
1: that's longer than me, right? So I've I've been dabbling at this for probably a, a decade, but but not a lot more than that. Okay, so so the question then is, how are you seeing the needs of the market and the expectations of the market changing? Because I would imagine that this is a maybe a lagging indicator of. The coolest new lab technologies, but maybe a leading indicator of the next challenges in, say, data science, right? First, you need software to analyze your own data, but then you're going to have enough data to do something big with. So which ways have the winds been blowing and what's exciting to you?
2: Yeah, well, you said trends and expectations. Let me start with expectations, and I I can also talk about trends, and they're related, certainly. One is, of course, machine learning and artificial intelligence. And this is one where it's certainly a trend, but I think the expectations are, you know, even greatly outweighing the the trend. So the expectations for what machine learning should be able to do have grown exponentially in the past five years. In terms of trends, um, machine learning, artificial intelligence are way up there. Another one is the volume of data has been growing, you know, also exponentially, which presents some new opportunities, right? There's new data analysis opportunities and new ways of Looking at problems and solving problems that didn't exist when this data wasn't available, and certainly presents new challenges with um, how you know where do you store it and how do you analyze it in a timely manner and what do we do with the results and how do we understand the results. So, yeah, the the amount of data that people are capable of producing is um, a big trend, and then uh, all the machine learning stuff is uh, the other. Those seem like the big, mm-hmm. the two big ones at the moment.
1: And and are you seeing this sort of clamor for AI ML it's kind of irrespective of the sector so you mentioned things like virology immunology cancer but also crop is everybody looking for this now
2: yeah i think everyone is thinking about how can we use this how should we use this there, i think there are some people who are 100 gung-ho i i certainly know that machine learning is going to be and, and already is um having huge benefits uh I, I i sometimes worry about folks who come along and think that it's a silver bullet and it's going to solve everything immediately and uh, making sure that everybody's expectations are realistic about, you know, what data are we using to train models? What are these models capable of? What, what does the output mean? What are the risks of uh, of using it? So I see huge benefits. I, I worry a little bit sometimes that there might be people who don't understand all the, all the risks in addition to the benefits.
1: That makes sense. I mean, it, it is after all a powerful set of tools, but that is what it is, right? It's a set of tools. So do you I'm guessing the answer is both, but but do you see customers more often asking you guys to like, can you organize our data in some software so we can do machine learning? Or can you give us software so we can click some buttons to do machine learning? Or are they asking you to, run, to actually train algorithms for them and to do the analyses?
2: Yeah, I mean, a little bit of all those, but I, I think most of the time when they're coming to us, they are wanting us to do the machine learning uh, piece as well. So actually training models and, and that mm-hmm. sort of thing.
1: So have you had to staff deliberately in that direction, sort of bolster your data science teams, or or did you have people who could already swing in that direction?
2: So far, we've had people who have been able to manage all of the types of machine learning projects that we've needed to. And you know, some of that is they were already interested in it, or mm-hmm. um, they wanted to do some training and, and take some courses and, and that type of thing ahead of time. So that has not been an issue. And uh, so far, things have been been looking good.
1: No, it's excellent to hear. It's one of those things, you know, there there are kind of any number of layers of sort of analytics in, in the life sciences, and machine learning absolutely is a specialty. I think a lot of times people assume that, you know, if you can write code, you can just deploy a machine learning model off out of a, whether it's scikit-learn or, or something else, and it helps to know what it's doing. Yes, yes,
2: for sure. I mean, and it's so easy to get um, incorrect results if you don't know what it's doing, and to think that they're good results. Um, you know, one of the other tricks with machine learning is, you know, this is a discipline of data science. So with software development, uh, with sort of traditional software development, we can just build things, hand it over to the client as done. With um, data science, we, in machine learning, we need to understand their data and what it means. So, again, if if we're handing something off and they're writing the, the training, then they can do that. But um, otherwise, we need to dig a little bit deeper and really understand they're going to hand us a huge pile of data and we have to know, what does this mean? And, you know, what are the, what are the possible uh, considerations for when we're training? Yeah. And of course you've probably experienced this often when a client hands you a huge pile of data,
1: you know, those data may not have been collected in a way that you would have wanted it to be for this problem. <laughs>
2: right. Yep. For sure. Right, you, right. you had mentioned like cancer diagnostics, right? And, and and it may not be clear. It may not be clear. They may not understand the limitations that, that some of their data was uh, right. collected inconsistently or, you know, their process has changed over the past five years or, or that can be tricky because they don't know it's a problem. We don't, if we, we know that that type of thing can be a problem, but if we don't know which bits of data have that issue, um, yeah, that's, that can be a little tricky.
1: Yeah. It's, it's one of those, like where they hand you a haystack and ask you to find the needle instead of, you know, we much prefer to like plan the whole process and like, all right, let's talk about how we're going to bail this hay to begin with,
2: you know? Yes, 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 for sure.
1: So let's um, talk a little bit more about, the company itself. Um, how long have you been with SciMed? What was your, your kind of professional journey? how do you end up building software for the life sciences?
2: Uh, so one thing I'll say is my journey in some ways can sound short because I uh, went to school and focused on computer science and math. And um, after finishing, I started doing some in- independent consulting. So I just did software development on my own. Um, I did that for a couple of years and then I moved down here to Durham, North Carolina, and joined Symed, and have been here ever since. So I'm not a person who has had 15 different jobs and all those types of things. That said, at the beginning I mentioned our the types of projects we work on. So the experience that I've had while I've been here at Symed has been tremendous, both on uh, working on a variety of projects and in a variety of roles. So at the moment I'm the president um, and. To some degree, it's a small company, so that means my job is everything that we do here. You know, Sometimes I'm the lawyer, and sometimes I'm the project manager, and sometimes I'm the developer. I'm the uh, people manager and the client uh, satisfaction. So I'm doing all of those things. And in my 15 or 20 years here, I'm, the first thing I did was spend time doing each of those roles independently, and then now doing them all, all together. So that's, that, that's sort of my um, primary role, but it realistically, My job, I feel like, is usually problem solving. So a client has a problem, a project has a roadblock, an employee has an issue. Uh, My job is to remove the roadblock, solve the problem, and get things moving quickly. And um, I like doing everything quickly. I like building projects quickly. I like solving problems quickly. You know, if an employee comes to me with a problem at 4 p.m. on a Tuesday, uh, what I would love to do is have that problem solved by 5.30 p.m., and they come back in the next morning and to the office and everything's clear and good shape, ready to go. So I, I'm, I love to build, get projects built in timelines that clients never thought were possible and, you know, also with quality uh, that will hopefully knock their socks off. So yeah, you know, my experience has been spending all these years learning about people, learning about clients, learning about software development. How to solve problems, how to um, remove roadblocks, and um, it's been it's been great. I mean, it's great fun and great people to work with and great projects to work on.
1: It sounds like you've got a, a real sort of kind of can do, constructive attitude. And in Genialis, you know, we've we've got we talk a lot about our core values, and and constructiveness is absolutely you know has been key to that, right? Like just looking for solutions that comes from me sounding like you wanting to. I'm happiest when I'm trying to solve something, right? Um, what's it been like uh, you know building a company in in durham i don't know that people appreciate but of course you know durham is part of the research triangle right with raleigh and and chapel hill Um, there's an amazing amount of biotech going on there i was i spent a few days in in that area this summer and had lunch with a friend at one of the sort of biotech campuses in a big glass building owned by alexandria real estate and you know if you spend time in kendall square you're awfully familiar with the alexandria real estate signs right like they're these Sort of the again the leading edge of of any biotech bubble, and I guess they're down there now. So so, what's it like um, building in in what could be considered kind of now the third biotech hub in the U.S.?
2: Yeah, it's wonderful. Um, I you know I certainly do think of it as a as a, a major biotech hub and probably one of the top three in the U.S. as you as you mentioned in the Triangle, we, we have um, a lot of great universities. So there are so many um, students coming through, so many projects going on, and and so many interesting people. It is a great place to work. You know the the area put um, resources into building um, RTP Research Triangle Park, and it has been you know a real success in bringing um, companies and and growing companies, you know even out of universities. but um so it's a fantastic place to be. But also, you know, I also love it because it's it's got it has so much going on, but it's such a small town a small area as well. I think that that's a little bit unusual in, in some of the other area, you know, if you talk about Boston or, um, you know, New York or some of the other hubs, they're so much bigger compared to how much going is going on. And the, I mean, the reason I like the small, sort of the smaller feel is because you can get to know everybody, you know, I mean, I'll be at a restaurant or um, out, you know, enjoying nightlife and maybe you strike up a conversation with the person next to you and, um, oh yeah, they, they, it turns out that they study uh, tuberculosis or Epstein-Barr virus or so it makes for great conversations and and um, it's really fun to get to know everybody. And uh, so, yeah, I don't know. I, I, it works really well for us as a company and uh, I very much enjoy it as well. Mm-hmm. And you, you mentioned the office. So are you guys mostly in office, um,
1: virtual or some hybrid style? How do you guys actually think about the, the brick and mortar of company
2: building? Yeah, it's hybrid. Um, so we have an office. We used to come in before the pandemic. We would come in every day or four days a week at least. And since COVID, we have left it up to employees. It's completely up to them. So there are some folks who never come in. There are some folks who come in a couple days a week. There are some folks who come in most every day. So it's really up to them. And I think it's been just fine for us. We've been able to maintain the communication that we need and get things done effectively. And sort of that allows people to do whatever works best for their life. So yeah, I, I think it's been great. Yeah, I know from firsthand
1: experience, employees tend to appreciate when you let them decide what works best for their lives <laughs> rather than yes, tell them.
2: Yes. it's very important to me to hire really, really good people. Then I don't have to, you know, I'm not worried about are they getting the work done or are they um, just off fooling around and, and not paying attention? So I think, I, in other words, it's also a level of um, of trust, right? We have a good working relationship. I trust them, they trust me, and then we get the work done.
1: And and are you finding most of your team are are kind of what I'd call homegrown talent? In other words, at least folks educated in the triangle or are they also kind of transplants like yourself?
2: Oh, there's a mix. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of transplantation into the triangle. It's common for for people to be migrating here. Um, So if you pick a random person off the street, there's a, I don't know, probably better than 50-50 chance that they started somewhere else, but, um, there's certainly a mix because, because there are, you know, lots of, lots of educational opportunities here too. good universities. Yeah. I I remember it was already some time ago where people would joke that
1: Cary, C-A-R-Y, North Carolina stood for containment area for relocated Yankees.
2: (laughs) Yeah, exactly. You got it.
1: <laughs> but, but, you know, I, I'm down in Houston and, and we find that here too. There are plenty of people who are Texas born and bred. And then there are also loads of people who've come here later because there are big industries that require secondary educations. And so there's the world's largest medical center and obviously the oil and gas nexus of, of North America and NASA and all these other things that would attract, you know, smart folks from elsewhere. And I feel like my impression of Raleigh, Durham, Chapel Hill is that it's it's much in the same vein
2: so I, you can grow up here and go to duke and unc uh, NC state so all of those folks there's great there's great talent around and then um, like you're saying there's, a, there's also a tremendous amount of um, people moving mostly for the same reasons you know for all of the all those universities and companies
1: I don't have kind of a, a recurring feature in this podcast sort of a lightning round thing but we're coming up on time and i do have a handful of questions that i i've
2: been meaning to ask
1: without a whole lot of segues between them so let's let's do something sort of a, a doesn't have to be a lightning round, but it just a handful of questions I'd love to get your, your take on. Um, and some of these may be more, more obviously related to the thread than others. Because you've been you know building a company, which I have an immense amount of respect for, having seen how hard it is firsthand, I'd love if you could share with us kind of a victory and also maybe a defeat, You know, something that worked really well, something that was a catastrophic failure, but that maybe you learned from and could share some lessons. And to, for the audience, I did not send this question ahead of time, so I'm putting Adam on the spot here entirely. <laughs> okay.
2: So that's all right i have some theoretical answers i'm trying to think of how concrete i can make them so i i don't think I'll, i'm going to name names of um uh things but generally uh, a defeat or the the projects that has caused the most problems are, are projects where there's there's no one paying attention to sort of unbridled complexity being added and sometimes that means that we need to not just do whatever our client asks but talk a little bit about what they're asking for why and sort of the value trade-off of what that complexity is going to mean in the short term but also over time so um, when when systems get more and more and more and more complex you can have issues with sort of the maintainability and what can happen is development speed can slow down to a crawl and the costs balloon and and the speed slows down So that's not to say that we don't or shouldn't do complex things. We should do them, but we should do them thoughtfully and make sure that we're not sort of over-tailoring solutions to specific requests. Because sometimes if you pull the nose of the plane up, you can solve many more problems with much less complexity if you're thinking about the problem in a little different way. So regardless, um, that's the thing that I watch out for is um, a runaway train of complexity and the success i mean it's hard it's hard because i can think of a hundred successful projects there are so many projects that i've been so happy with uh, the outcome and and their clients have been thrilled i'm just see if i can come up with a what's a good example yeah um i don't often get to see the direct impact on patients we're usually a few you know a few steps away from that uh, some of this is research right so we might be finding um learning about covid learning about hiv influenza all these viruses. And what's gonna happen is this research will be used and later create medications. So so those are often long-term things. We have others where the timeline is shorter and then we know that the patients are benefiting more quickly. Mostly I get to see the satisfaction of uh, our clients coming back after using the system for a month or three months or six months and saying how much easier their life is and um, how fantastic the results are and those types of things. And And when they come back and are thrilled um, that's when I know that we've really uh, we've really done our job. All right, and these next ones will be more lightning roundy questions. Then, um, what's the uh,
1: the best book you've read this year?
2: The best book I've read this year. <laughs>
1: um, it's a hard question, actually. It's not an easy question unless something is like just burning on your.
2: Okay, I'm not doing very good at the lightning round piece. I thought I was going to be able to knock that one out. <laughs> okay, I can't remember the title. Um, I'm going to give you the lightning round description. Um, I read a great parenting book this year it's built as a parenting book and um i think it that it can help in that but really it's talking about communication and human relationships and understanding other people and their their issues and conflicts and worries and concerns and how to um respond to those so that has been a book that i think has helped improve uh, me as a parent and also as a as a person uh, as a human as a fellow human
1: all right that's a, that's a good one and likewise, we've got stacks of parenting books and they all have the same titles and I can't remember them, but, but those tend to be good learning how to you can communicate with a child. You can communicate with a customer for sure. Um, all right. Last two East Carolina barbecue, the best style or are there better styles? And what's your favorite barbecue joint in that part of the world? This one might lose you clients. So be careful what you say.
2: <laughs> okay. Yes. East Carolina barbecue is great. I am uh, a fan of the vinegary flavors more than um, sweet tomatoey flavors. So I think that's great. The Q Shack is a, is a great barbecue place uh, here in Durham. So I would highly recommend that. And I don't know if it counts as barbecue, but one of my favorites is they do smoked chicken wings. So, you know, if you if you have ever enjoyed buffalo wings, then um, I feel like the only thing that makes them better is to smoke them first.
1: Fantastic. Well, now you've got me waiting for lunch. Um, Of course, I'm in Texas, so I'm going to have to argue that brisket's the way to go. And uh, I know exactly what I'm going to go out for when we're done. Okay, great. I think that sounds like a good plan. (laughs) All right. So just to finish up, is there anything you'd like to leave the listeners with? A parting message? uh, Something they should know about Cyanide Solutions we haven't touched on? Um, Balls in your court for a final word.
2: Well, I appreciate it. I feel like we've covered so much. And mostly I appreciate your time. Uh, you know, I, the things that I already said, um, I'm just so happy and grateful to work with such a great team here at SciMed. I love all my coworkers and, and think they do a fantastic job. I feel so grateful to be able to work with all such great clients. They're both friendly and easy to work with and also working on really interesting and beneficial things. So um, I feel like a, so lucky and grateful to have all those things and, and I couldn't ask for anything else.
1: Adam Stacio, thank you so much for joining me on Talking Precision Medicine. Please do subscribe to the podcast, leave us comments and feedback um, wherever you listen to your podcasts. We appreciate your time.
2: Thanks, Rafael.
0: This has been Talking Precision Medicine. Please share the episode with your colleagues, leave a comment or a review, and stay tuned for the next one. For more information, visit genialis.com or follow Genialis on LinkedIn. Thanks for joining the conversation.